We had a fuel card business. That's a pretty successful business. We have over a million litres of fuel that go through our system every month. So I looked at that and thought, you know, I'm, I'm interested in longer term business models that aren't based around fuel. You know, we need to innovate and disrupt. I'm Harry Ricks, uh, founder and CEO of a business called Accountable. I'm also the CIO of a family business called JR Ricks & Sons. We've seen a growth in companies that are starting to be purpose-driven in terms of caring about more than just making profit. So we talk about the triple bottom line, which is people, planet and profit. The biggest challenge that you see is businesses don't know where to start. And you've had to build this business, I guess, over the last two and a half years, which has not been an easy two and a half years for most businesses. No, it was uh, a challenging time during COVID, especially when <laughs> yeah. business expenses fell off yeah. the earth. But what it did mean was that a lot of businesses got used to digitization. What, what's the biggest challenge, I guess, of the last two and a half, three years of being that tech founder and building that business? I think it's just like, Hi, I'm Steve. I'm the Digital Director here at Spectrum Group. Welcome to the podcast. As usual, I'm joined by Neil Wells. I'm also joined by two very special guests. Firstly, we've got Katrina Elam, who's the Service Director here at Spectrum. We're also joined by Harry Ricks, who is the founder of Accountable and ExpenseMate. I think you're really going to enjoy the podcast. As usual, please support us as much as you can by liking, subscribing and sharing everything that we do. We really do appreciate it. And with all that said, welcome to Tomorrow's Workplace Today. So welcome to Harry Ricks. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. No problem at all. So for listeners, watchers, do you want to introduce yourself, who you are, what you do? Yeah, definitely. So I'm Harry Ricks, uh, founder and CEO of a business called Accountable, uh, previously called ExpenseMate, which I'm sure we'll get into uh, throughout the discussion. I'm also the CIO of uh, a family business called JR Ricks & Sons, which has been trading for over 150 years now. So uh, I wear a few different hats. Uh, I like to keep myself busy. Excellent. So we'll come on to Rick's uh, later on in the podcast, but for now, let's just understand a bit more about, well, first expense mate and then accountable, what those two organizations do. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, Accountable, uh, what was previously ExpenseMate, is a finance automation tool. Uh, so we do automated expense management. So prepaid cards that link into a software system that fully automates uh, an expense journey from payment right the way through to reconciliation into accounting packages. Uh, what we do that's a little bit different is we've brought in um, some sustainability reporting into the platform. So. Um, You'll have seen a growth maybe in businesses caring more and more about the carbon footprint. We've decided to bake that into our tool to mean that we're not only automating finance processes, we're also automating that element of uh, sustainability reporting to engage employees about their carbon footprint. Okay, and in terms of accountable taking that in the direction of kind of environmental, what, what led you to take the, the business in that direction? Yeah, so we really wanted to become unique in the marketplace. Um, I'm sure a lot of people know there's a lot of different expense tools. We do think that our customer experience is, you know, uh, obviously one of the best in terms of the card linking directly to the system, but we wanted to have another USP. And uh, I was seeing a growth in companies that are starting to be purpose-driven in terms of caring about more than just making profit. So we talk about the triple bottom line, which is people, planet, and profit. And I think our, our product kind of goes into each of the three of those areas, which I can delve into later on. Um, but yeah, we, we wanted to create something different and we wanted to make it so that uh, employees could engage in what their carbon footprint was 
because it's often you know if you buy a flight you don't necessarily think about you think about the cost implication but do you think about the environmental impact mm. and we were in a unique position where we could build a tool that engaged people in what does it cost but also you know what, what's the environmental footprint and that's really uh, the, the kind of purpose that we're trying to get to is is to look at metrics beyond profit uh, it, with the tool so, so how do you at a high level how do you do that and so this week or today I booked some train tickets to go to Birmingham with me and Neil on Wednesday so sounds like great fun uh, yeah, I'm sure it will be hopefully <laughs> well we're going to the Accounts Payable Association conference so what, what could be more fun than that <laughs> uh, but you guys really know how to <laughs> how to live <laughs> so, so talk us through then so how would you calculate the yeah, carbon so, footprint. So we, so we do two different calculations. With, with the uh, accountable card, we know that you've purchased a ticket uh, with, through a train company because of the merchant category code. So the first thing we'd look at before you've even entered any information is how much money have you spent and who is it with? And if we know it's with a train provider, there are basic emissions factors that you can do a spend-based analysis of, of that expense. Because the employee engages with the platforms to take a picture of the receipts, they actually also type in things like the uh, location that they traveled from mm-hmm. and to, uh, and the class of travel that they traveled on the train. And that enables us to do an activity-based uh, calculation, which takes into you know account the, the distance traveled. Uh, and that means that it's a far more accurate calculation. So we give two different calculations, basically an immediate one as soon as you spend the money, mm-hmm. but then a more accurate one once the user submitted the expense. And because we're automating some of the uh, aspects like entering the amount, the, you know, the uh, retailer, because we get that from the card, we feel like we can ask for a couple more things. Scope three business travel is the last area that you have to report on. And that's exactly what our tool automates is that scope three business travel because you're an expense, uh, okay. we're an expense provider. So, you know, if you were thinking as a company, what do I have to report on? It's on that scope three business travel. Um, you can go to the nth degree and go crazy yeah. and try and look at everything, but realistically, you know that's not something that you can impact as a company. What you can impact is my travel policy says, you know, Steve can get a train with Wellesley to Manchester versus, you know, flying or whatever. I mean, good luck getting a flight from Humberside to Manchester. Helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but you know what I mean in terms of like you can. Uh, you, you can measure the difference in those two di- types of travel. Not really now, though. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I think if, if Spectrum wanted to like implement, you know, a new fast bullet electric train, it's not going to be possible, is it? So yeah. it's something that's out of you guys' control. So just focus on the things that you can really control. So your so your tool automates the reporting of an element of business spend, which is the expense bit. But yep. ultimately, we're buying copiers from Canon and whoever else. So as a business, we would need to look at our broader activity and calculate that on a more broader level. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, definitely. So I mentioned scopes one, two, and three earlier, just to break those down, you know, break out kind of what, what exactly that means. Scope one is uh, your direct uh, consumption of, okay. of fuel. So say you put fuel in a car, mm-hmm. um, which you can do through your accountable card, but maybe you've got fuel cards or, or such. Um, scope two is indirect emissions. So that's um, things like your electricity that you're using. Yep. You know, someone else is burning the fuel, but you're using the energy directly. And then scope three is your your value chain emissions. And that's your upstream and downstream. So you're buying copiers from mm-hmm. Canon. Um, 
but then you know maybe you're selling them to J.R. Ricks and Sons, and then mm. there's maybe some transportation in in terms of like that. So yeah, you you look to measure scopes one and two first. Uh, and then once you've done that, you've got the more complicated process of actually looking at your whole value chain. And that is a really difficult process. And that's when, you know, you talked about what level do you go to? Mm. Um, you know, you can go to some really deep points on that. But, you know, the starting point is to maybe do a spend-based calculation and find out where the hotspots are in your value chain. So you guys probably buy loads and loads of copiers. So a good place to start would be hey, we buy 100,000 copiers a year. If we change to a more sustainable copier manufacturer, mm. that would have more impact than us, um, you know, changing the coffee capsules that we bought for, for, the, for, the, for, the, yeah, for yeah. the vending machine. You know, you start on the biggest ticket item okay. and, and work from there. So that's the approach that you take. Okay. And why, so when, when you came up with the idea to move the business more in towards environmental, what, what gave you that idea? What kind of made you take that direction? I think a couple of things, you know, for me personally, um, I care about the environment and I think that it's something that more and more people will begin to care about. So if you can try and encourage responsible business, I think that's fantastic. Mm. Um, but two, you know, driving market needs in terms of this reporting requirement uh, of the type of customer that we're targeting, you know, they've, they've, they're going to have this reporting requirement and finance teams are our key target persona. And what we find is that finance teams are usually the ones that get lumped with this challenge in terms of, you know, you've got to look through invoices, you've got yeah. to look through mileage claims, you've got to look through business travel expenses, and you've got to work back from that finance data to create this environmental reporting. And a lot of the tools that exist today are just kind of like, you know, thrown upon finance teams for them to go and manually collect all that data. So anything that we could do to automate that, you know, that's the the business that we're in is making life easier, much much like you guys. You know, it's all about making life easier for your customers, automating mundane, boring, yeah, tedious yeah. finance processes that, you know. Um, so that's an opportunity that I saw as well was you can make a really good impact and encourage people to think twice, but you can also save people time. Did you feel did you feel that pain internally as part of the group of companies with GRX? I'm guessing that there'll be some reporting requirements there. So was it something that you, you spotted internally and thought, well, hang on, if we've got to do it as our own business, there must be other businesses similar. Yeah, exactly that. So um, SECR, as as mentioned, is one of the legislations. Uh, so streamlined energy and carbon reporting. Um, one of the RICS businesses went over that threshold, so we had to do SECR reporting. Uh, Victory Leisure Homes moved over a 36 million turnover and over 250 staff. Mm -hmm. um, so that means that it hit SECR. Um, and part of that process was, you know, we had to actually do this reporting. And I saw, you know, it's not a massively challenging process once you understand what you're doing, mm. but it takes someone to learn it, mm. do it, monitor it, uh, more spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah, more, more spreadsheets, more uh, time away from working on strategic value-adding tasks. Well, it's still obviously a big value-adding task, but maybe not what the finance team kind of signed up for. Um, some larger businesses maybe have a ESG lead nowadays who's doing this, but they're still having to go to finance to get that information in the first place, so it causes that distraction. So that's if the, the turnover is more than $36 million, do you say? Yeah, more, so you've got to meet... Uh, two of the three okay. criteria. So you've got to have either over 250 staff, okay. uh, 36 million turnover, or a balance sheet value of over 18 million. 
18. Yeah, 18 million, yeah. Okay. So if you hit two of those three, you have to provide this reporting to the government? Uh, no, it goes in your uh, accounts. Okay. So, yeah, it goes in your, your account report at the end of the year. So on an annual basis? Yeah. Okay, cool. And are there certain, so there's a size element to that. Are there, are there certain sectors or industries that are particularly kind of prominent that they have to do more and more of this reporting? I think um, outside of SECR, there's other requirements. Uh, you know, there's things like uh, PPN 0621, which some people may have heard of, but that's for uh, any public sector uh, procurement process that has a value of over 5 million. Okay. But I think over time, SECR and those, that uh, PPN will reduce in the size of businesses that or the size of contract that have to do that reporting. Mm. So you see anybody that's serving the public sector is having to start doing some of this reporting. Uh, you're also seeing anybody that's working with large PLCs. A lot of PLCs have been uh, had a lot of pressure put on them to sign up to net zero 2050 uh, agreements. So they're now starting to trickle that down to their supply chain to start to look at measuring their um, scope one, two, and three emissions. Um, because the, their scope three emissions, these big PLCs, yeah. are the big chunk of this. Yeah, are, yeah. The, are the companies you know their scope one and two emissions are the are the other companies, the other PLC companies scope three emissions. Okay, so if people are um, servicing public sector, then this is something that they they do they should be caring about and increasingly so. Yeah, thinking. definitely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people will have done. Uh, PPN 0621 listening to this or they'll soon come across it yeah. um, and it's just having a carbon reduction plan but part of that is benchmarking you know where you are today yeah, uh, and then moving on from there and actually saying this is what we're going to do to reduce our impact so that's a good point actually sorry so do what's the minimum requirement a business has to report on their carbon emissions or do they have to demonstrate that they have they're reducing their carbon emissions or what yeah, What's the requirement look like? well, so I mean, at the moment for SECR, it's simply just reporting. Okay. PPN is that you have to show how you're going to be reducing. Yeah. Uh, you have to have a plan. How closely they're monitored at the moment, you know, isn't necessarily like... Uh, I'm going to get audited on it. Or yeah, it's just, yeah, there's nothing like crazy detailed at the moment for an SME or a mm. smaller business. Uh, but again, over time, I think that will change and you know, they'll, they'll become more and more strict in terms of the requirements that people have on actually checking to see that they're following up on some of these things. Yeah. Another area is, um, you know, following COP, there was, uh, I think it was 130 trillion that banks kind of put uh, committed towards, um, you know, encouraging green investments. Okay. And you're seeing a lot of the high street banks now. Um, I've spoken to Barclays, NatWest, Lloyd's, HSBC that are actually starting green financing initiatives so if you can demonstrate a carbon reduction plan you actually might get cheaper finance from right. the bank uh, when you go for a loan and you're looking to expand your business you know if you can do that in an environmentally friendly way yeah you might get a better rate on your loan than if you're just kind of you know uh, applying without any consideration okay yeah we were talking before and we obviously we do a a bit in the public sector um, on the print side of the business but certainly the plan over the next few years is to do more and more of that and CAT is spearheading a lot of our kind of activity in terms of environmental so I guess any any more tips for us so other than we should be looking at how we report on it anything else that we should be doing to drive that credential just um, well in terms of driving the credentials do work out what your benchmark is 
you know, that's the first place to start. You know, yeah. what what are your scope one and two emissions? Um, and maybe looking at the biggest areas of your value chain. But my advice would be is collaborate with other people that are going through the same journey. The biggest challenge that we see is businesses don't know where to start. Yeah, that's the... my big challenge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Starting that research from scratch. Yep. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, we offer a service to other businesses where we can say, you know, we've obviously worked out how to do that at Ricks. We, we've, we've put it into our accountable, accountable tool. So we do offer a consultancy service where we can help people get started. But, you know, we're fairly confident that once we show people how to get going, you know, it, it's like double entry bookkeeping or whatever, you know, it, it's mm. a very similar process. You, you learn how to do it and then, you know, it becomes second nature when you start doing it as part of your month end or whatever. Um, you know, carbon accounting is exactly the same. Um, and uh, are we seeing it, businesses, pu- I guess, push this through their supply chain? Because pres- presumably we'll be going to Canon and saying we need to start reporting on all this. So you need to tell us how much you're putting into the environment in terms of carbon, etc. Is that is that happening? Yeah, uh, we're, we're seeing it um, across the RICS group. You know, people coming to us and saying, can you mm. let us know your carbon reduction plan? Um, so I think you'll see more and more of that, definitely. Um, mm. I think the biggest thing that will drive it, though, is legislation at the end of the day. Um, we know how things go unless you're yeah. mandated to do something. You know, you probably businesses will try and get around it. But um, I think if legislation was to drive this, that everybody had to, you know, have a... Uh, an accurate intensity metric, say Canon, for example, having to know exactly how much uh, energy went into producing a copier. Um, yeah, that'd be interesting. You think about that, like all the different suppliers in Japan and tracking it all the way down for each material component that went into it, and then the fact that you have to stick it on a big container ship to ship yeah. it across to Europe and then <coughs> get it into the UK and, and globally, that'll be huge. Yeah, well, supply chains aren't simple things, are they? And that's, <laughs> no. that's the massive massive problem that the um that the sustainable world has is that you know it's not as simple as just going to once if you go to canon that's you know that they have to then go to their however many thousand suppliers that they deal with from across the world to actually build that accurately and Mm. uh that's no easy feat is it you'd need a team of Probably yeah. twenty people working full time on that. Yeah, to get that's to it. Of it. That that was the topic, or that came up in the previous podcast because it was like, how far I'm do fine. you go? Do, do I think you... you have to draw the line, though, don't you? I think yeah. in terms of corporate social responsibility, it's always about your part of the world and what you touch. Mm. And I think if everybody took the same approach, um, that's where the the results come from. Yeah, well, you know you can focus on your scope one and your scope two emissions. That's yeah. stuff that's directly controlled by you and your scope three business travel to, to an extent. Um, so if you focus there and do your best effort and then yeah. just think responsibly about your supply chain, yeah, you know, um, I think that's a really sensible place to start uh, trying to conquer the world mm. yeah. immediately. You'll give up on day one because you're not going to do anything. Exactly. Okay. Whereas, you know, thinking, mm, could I put some solar on the roof of the building to reduce my energy bills but also you know save us potentially having to burn coal again or something you know as, as we yeah, can't yeah. rely on uh, gas supply you know that that's a great thing to do for for, for the environment i'd be intrigued to see <laughs> we could probably put a different spin on it because obviously we one of the only photocopy companies that probably refurbish copies there's a lot of smaller dealerships that yeah, just yeah. try and shift boxes and get new stuff out the door whereas we actually take 
good machines back, don't we, and yeah. refurbish them. And we probably don't promote that as much, even though that's normally a good step in the door, but there'll yeah. probably be customers out there that if they have to go through this process and look at the greener version, then our refurbished machines are, are very Yeah, good. It's, it's just something we've always done, part of our core business, but we've never sold that as an angle. Mm. It's just something we've done. Yeah. I think a lot of businesses, though, you, you start speaking to people and they're like, oh, we, you know, we have this circular, you know, the circular business model is exactly what you want to try and do, yeah. you know, reuse, upcycle. And lots of businesses do it because it's a natural cost-saving uh, mechanism, mm. isn't it? Or it's, you know, what's going to happen to that copier? It's going to be a problem for the person. They want to get rid of it, don't they? So yeah. how, do you turn, exactly, how, yeah. how do you turn what you're already doing and, you know, maybe take that another step further? Yeah. Uh, but then also talk about it and you know let people know that's what you're doing and make it a differentiator versus you know some of your less conscientious suppliers or or, or competitors because mm. really if that's a differentiator yeah it, that's great you should be shouting about that and it's it's good for everybody yeah you make a good point in terms of the way that energy prices are at the minute, at the minute as well if you can become more efficient as a business then yeah it's great for your environmental credentials but actually it's going to save you a ton of money as well at the minute which is not a bad thing hi guys i just want to jump in and talk about a specific area of automation which we often get involved in which is the processing of supplier invoices or accounts payable automation as it's also known most businesses have invoices that they get sent from their suppliers essentially what our solutions do is they read those invoices they extract key information from them like purchase order numbers supplier codes or supplier names we then use that information and match that up against digital records. So can we find a purchase order number? Can we find a good received note for that product? If we can, then we can match it up, we can reconcile it, and we can automatically post that into your finance system. What makes us different is that we configure our solutions to be specific to your organization. So we're not an out the box, plug it in and see what you get. We actually understand more about your processes, your organization, your supplier base, and we configure the solution to meet those requirements. Hopefully that's enough to pique your interest. If it is, get in touch. Let's have a chat. Talk to me about, um, I don't know if you got it on your little list there, but um, I remember when I was speaking to a couple of the manufacturers around the whole plastic tax thing. So again, there's generally some sort of legislation comes in place and then people have to scramble and put <laughs> put, yeah. uh, put some sort of processes. And I remember speaking to one lady and I mentioned the idea of offsetting and things like this because... Yeah, she didn't like it at all. She was like, oh, greenwashing and all this type of stuff. And it was the first time I heard it and she got quite emotional about it and a bit angry. And I was like, oh. But again, there's different types of offsetting, isn't there? And then I think you were looking into more the local. Just talk to me about some of the stuff that you was playing out in your yeah, like, it is a really investigations. It is a really contentious topic, you're right. Um, all businesses should first look to um, you know, measure, understand where they are today, look to reduce their impact first so mm. you know can i do things more sustainably but then some businesses will always have those residual emissions and that's where you've got to be really careful is if you're not if you're just measuring and then offsetting everything and mm. maybe not really looking into the quality of those offsets mm. you're just greenwashing because you, you're just saying i've spent some money and i've kind of mm. got a clean conscience now but whereas actually if you look to reduce as much as you can but then there's still an element of your kind of consumption that you can, you know, then think, right, how am I going to invest in something that you know, has a positive impact on the environment? Whether that's things from tree planting right the way through to, you know, can support uh, cook stove uh, technology innovations in, in Asia or whether it's something local, like you say, you know, you can get involved in um, 
maybe something that we've been looking at at, at Rick's is how can we get involved in encouraging regenerative farming because we've got a lot of customers that are agricultural customers yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or it's like peat restoration in Yorkshire so that's another so that's the big one in Yorkshire at the moment um, so yeah peat restoration to, yeah it takes peat. a lot of CO2 out of the atmosphere doesn't it I've heard this bogs and peats and things like that and moss yeah. and stuff like that can actually take a lot of CO2 yeah and that's the big one in, in Yorkshire that's kind of like uh, well one that I think is worth getting behind mm. but the one in uh, regenerative farming is a little bit more complex you know none of these things are like straightforward it's really difficult to actually scientifically say if you leave your field for a year and let it kind of just naturally yeah. regenerate uh, what impact does that actually have on the environment they're still creating that standard but mm. on the on the peat side of things that's quite a well formulated um, framework so that's a really good project to get behind but um, yeah, you should only really look to do that once you've tried to reduce your emissions as much as possible. Um, you know, I'm not going to stop anybody supporting a great cause mm. like uh, you know reforestation, mm. but really you should think about what can I do to reduce my impact before I, you know, it's like turn off the light, don't leave it on, <laughs> don't yeah, just yeah, yeah. don't just pay some extra money to plant a tree that maybe would get cut down if you're not careful and you haven't properly looked into where that tree's been planted. I'm certainly doing that in my house this year. Just I'm just walking around the house switching lights off. Of yeah. just, I, haven't, I haven't turned the light on yet. <laughs> 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 just got a torch. <laughs> a torch. I can, see, I can see that. So one of the things we try to do is kind of cast our mind forward a bit. So 10 years, where where do you think businesses will be in terms of environmental? Is it, yeah, so I think there'll be a massive shift, as I mentioned, about circular business models. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, you talked about recycling uh, copiers. I, I think businesses that aren't taking that approach will, uh, well, I hope anyway, will start to be kind of like phased out. Mm. It, it's going to become so, maybe not in 10 years, but 20 years, so much the norm that people look to recycle, they stop mm. having this like one-time consumerism yeah. approach and start to think, actually, you know, I care about the full life cycle of that product. So I really hope that uh, that in time, you know, that, that will be the standard is that things are always looked to be reused, recycled versus one-time uh, products. Good yeah. stuff. I think it'll be a, a minimum standard from what you expect from your supplier. Whereas now, like we said, it's a bit of a corporate social responsibility attitude. It's mm. that's been phased out. It's a what are you doing that helps my carbon footprint, and it's a, like I said, that cycle, that mm-hmm. circular. Yeah, it'd be a great world to live in uh, where people think about how they're going to take back the product that they yeah. manufactured, mm. as well as just like selling it. But that takes innovation in the business model. You know, can you start to lease products versus you know selling them outright to encourage that? Yeah. Um, but it takes, you know, we, we, we have a, um, a holiday home manufacturing company. It takes a massive shift in the culture of the business and also, it, you know, just investing and in understanding how to do that. Mm. Um, but, you know, as I say, I think businesses that are starting to think about that now and gear themselves up over the next 10 years should stand themselves in a really good position because hopefully in 10 years time, people will demand that versus it being a nice to have. Yeah. I think it comes to it only actually comes to to show when uh, people like Attenborough does his Blue Planet and there's just plastic in the ocean. Or if you if you pay to go to the Maldives and all of a sudden you just see carry bags, <laughs> you, you don't actually see it until 
the nth degree, but then it causes this massive sort of shift. And I don't know why, but McDonald's straws went from plastic to paper, but then loads of other things were still plastic, wasn't it? So it's a kind of, how do you extrapolate that out and then and then actually cause people or want, how do you affect change at such a big level? Because there's the other angle, do you find people or do you actually, how do you, in, how would you get them to actually want to change, I guess? So, but by putting solutions in place that are easy to adopt, that change becomes easy, I guess? Yeah, well, it's something that, as I said earlier, I think legislation is going to be the biggest thing to drive it, but the challenge is legislation in this country doesn't impact the rest of the world, so it's something that we have to work you know, across the whole globe on, yeah, and that's not an easy, you know, that is, I mean, if I could tell you the answer to that while sitting on the podcast, I'd probably mm. deserve... Yeah, there we go. <laughs> serious Nobel kudos in like whoever solves that problem. You know, it, it's a massive, massive, massive global problem. And there's so much complexity to it in terms of, you know, developing countries thinking that we've got rich off fossil fuels, so why can't they do yeah, the yeah. same? And, yeah. you know, um, we don't necessarily think that's important because, you know, well, let's look at what's happening in Russia. Russia mm. aren't really thinking about what's sustainable. They're busy, you know, invading yeah. other countries and, mm. and things like that at the moment. So it, it's just on a on that global scale, it, it's it's a hugely com, uh, complex issue. I think it's generational as well. I think, um, particularly the younger generations, have been taught this from school age now. Um, they they're teaching it in universities um, this is how you lead a business this is how you run a business mm. so these next level leaders that will be coming up through the ranks they're expecting the companies that maybe they start working in or when they start up their own businesses it's just how it has to be um, so I think naturally as the years progress it will be something that is more normal mm. I mean, it's, it's a good point actually in terms of because we've talked about recruiting talent quite a bit on this podcast and how difficult it is to recruit mm. talent and I'm assuming that the next generation are looking at businesses that you know do have those ESG credentials and are thinking of the environment as well because you're right it is a definitely a generational thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's how they uh, I suppose how they actually uh, show that they're yeah. on that journey. Yeah. Um and that's what we think's nice about our tool is that you can have an ESG strategy and you can make some um really meaningful change. But sometimes it's really difficult to filter that down to the employees. So I suppose with our system, it's an app that every single employee across the company can have in their hand. Mm. And it shows that you are tracking your carbon footprint. Uh, you're encouraging them to reduce their carbon footprint. But then it's maybe giving you information about the types of projects that the company has supported if they are at the point of offsetting. Yeah. Um, which is a good employee engagement tool because yeah. one of the biggest challenges that we've heard from people that do work in the industry is employee engagement is really tough yeah i get asked questions by my guys already about really? yeah um how we recycle and what we can be doing better and if they don't think i'm recycling properly they'll call me out on it mm, okay. and you okay. and you hear it and from customers customers will ring up and say what are you doing about recycling um and asking for our advice as well so it is already out there it's already already really important mm. it's only gonna get bigger yeah Cool. Let's. I'd like to talk about you a bit, if that's all right. Just in terms yeah. of your career, because you know, you're clearly entrepreneurial. You've a tech founder, which I'd just like to understand a bit more about your journey to where you are today. Yeah. So um, I, I've been doing a few talks recently where I've been 
given the different generations of the Ricks family, as I mentioned, it's sixth generation family business. And I think I'm one of the first, well, I'm not the first, but a generation that's been lucky enough to go to university, whereas other generations have gone straight (laughs) into the family business at like the age of 16 and toiled their way to, you know, through. But I've been lucky enough that I went to uh, university and studied uh, business management as a degree. Uh, and then I went off to a multinational consultancy firm called Accenture, where I worked for three years. Uh, I worked in payments at Barclays for a while, which kind of explains maybe why I'm mm. in fintech now. Uh, but then I also worked in the innovation team there, which was all about uh, rapidly prototyping uh, products, getting them in front of users, getting feedback. And really that kind of sparked... Uh, me wanting to do something myself eventually Um, and I saw that you know there's we've got this amazing family business up in Yorkshire Um, you know I've learned a lot doing that for other people maybe now it's time to to have a go myself and and come back home to the to the family business and uh, you know set up my own thing within a broader support network uh, but also maybe give back to that some of the things that I can offer from Mm. being in you know multinational company that's technology focused going back to a very logistics manufacturing heavy family business there's definitely a, a two-way street that that works there you know i learn yeah. a lot from them they can take a few things from me as well so how did you get started then once you arrived back in hull and said i want to i want to start a tech element of the business yeah we had a fuel card business okay uh so uh, that's a pretty successful uh, business that's you know we, we we have over a million liters of fuel that go through uh, our, our system every month oh. um so i looked at that and thought you know i'm i'm interested in you know longer term business models that aren't based around fuel you know we mm-hmm. need to uh innovate and disrupt and think you know how do we get out of those industries how can i do something that's a little bit more sustainable so i thought why don't we go into broader payments so we've got all this experience in card payments. Let's look at you know creating a product that serves another consumer need, which is that general expense challenge. Mm. Uh, so really, I kind of set to work with a lot of our existing customers that we had. You know, speaking to them, learning what would they like from a, a card system that that automated you know general business purchases, and started to build a minimum viable product that served those needs. And then have ever since just been developing new features to you know, attract more and more customers. Um, so that's kind of how it's happened. And that was two and a half years ago. And it, you blink and then you're kind of where <laughs> you are today. And you, you've been working on something for, for, for years. And uh, yeah, it's... How many people you got in your team now? Uh, we've now got uh, eight people in the team. Brilliant. So yeah, we're, we're growing. Um, we've got some exciting opportunities of potential international expansion at the moment, some new geographies. Wow. Um, and we've kind of been through the process of building a product outsourced to keep costs low and make sure that we have product market fit and now like bringing that team in house um, and starting to really like own what we build making us far more flexible and making us kind of you know really be a technology business how long did it take you from having that idea to getting an MVP as you say in the market I mean the good thing about outsourcing is you can do things pretty quick Mm. Uh, so I think we probably I'm trying to remember now it's a while ago but we, we probably got there in, a, in about six months from yeah we want to do this to having a product probably Something in someone like true. Spectrum's hands you yeah, know yeah, you guys yeah, yeah. are great for Try me this. you know uh, 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 you know testing out the product 
Um, but that's that's what's been great doing something with a local you know in the local community it was really good to just get a product out there that I knew wasn't perfect but that people would use and you guys know me you'll give feedback before Mm. I tried to commercialize it just you know how does it work and that'll be one piece of advice that I have to anybody that's trying to build a business is just get something out there as quick as you can Mm. to see how it works you can work for years and not have something out there it's never going to be perfect but just try get something to someone uh, which you guys know from kind of creating technology products just Mm. get something in front of people get users feedback and build from there and was the key to that keeping the scope small or keeping the resource big if that makes sense keeping the scope small definitely Um, otherwise you end up spending a lot of money so you want to try and keep the scope as small as possible just solve the biggest customer problem first Mm. Um, and if you can do that then people will use the product and then you can build from there and then just solve the next biggest problem yeah um, and you've had to build this business I guess over the last two and a half years which has not been an easy two and a half years for most businesses no it was uh, a challenging time during Covid especially when <laughs> yeah. business expenses fell off yeah. the earth but what it did mean was that a lot of businesses got used to digitisation I know you you guys were really busy um, mm. everybody wanted to automate their processes and make it so that people didn't have to come into the office Yeah. so yes it wasn't a great time for business expenses traditional going out buying things but actually people really wanted to streamline their processes so we're much more open to these types of solutions guys i'm back i just want to jump in and talk about a specific area of automation that we get involved in which is called rpa also known as robotic process automation basically what that does is it replicates human behavior so we use software bots to replicate human behavior so anywhere where you've got people or teams of people going onto different systems, copying, pasting data, going onto web applications or portals, downloading information, uploading information. Any of that stuff tends to be rule-based. Go here, do this, do that. And instead of using your people to do that, actually you can use a bot to do that. So we can train, configure a bot to do exactly that process. It's a massive growth area, really exciting exciting technology. Gartner talk about it as being the fastest growing enterprise technology in the market. Hopefully that's enough to have piqued your interest if it is, get in touch, let's have a chat, see if we can help. I guess a couple of your customers that probably had some big maintenance and uh, contracts, I'm just thinking of air conditioning and bits and pieces like that, they were still on the road, still having to maintain fridges and stuff like that, so those guys were still buying parts and it's those ad hoc expenses, wasn't it? And and still the fuel, I suppose, receipts and whatnot, but yeah, because my mileage completely dropped off the cliff, but mm-hmm. again, it's um, you're right, there'll be certain industries that still needed to be out there and, and keeping the world and the wheels of industry turning as such. <laughs> yeah, they kept me going. They, they, kept, kept, me, going. they, they kept me alive, some uh, yeah. of those maintenance companies. Yeah. Uh, yeah, some of our best customers are people that, no matter what, were out and about on the road. And are uh, they still the persona? Are they still the, the guys that you'd still want to talk to? Are they the type of businesses? Yeah, I mean, that's the FM, bread and butter yeah. customer for us that we solved the initial pain point for, mm. was, was that maintenance-type um, persona. Uh, engineer engineers on the road yeah. yeah but then now we're building new features things like mileage reimbursements okay um, non-card based transactions into the system some of the sustainability reporting side of things so mm. we're now trying to reach a much broader spectrum of, of customer um, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's got the brand in there <laughs> um, yeah so we're, we're, we're now 
you know, trying to get into professional services, companies, people that are now traveling again and, and doing, but and we still have our core customer base of like construction, mm. facilities management, um, and engineers and things like that. So what what's the biggest challenge, I guess, of the last two and a half, three years of being that tech founder and building that business? I think it's just like riding the highs and lows. Mm. <laughs> and uh yeah, it's there's there's loads of times when you, you love what you're doing, and there's other times when it can be really difficult when things don't quite go your way. You know, if you you've got your biggest customer, things haven't maybe worked out as exactly as you like. You know, that could be really tough. So I think just um, riding the highs and lows, and always trying to remain positive, and you know, just be be really kind of like you know focused on what you're trying to achieve, and know that sometimes it's gonna feel great other times mm. it's gonna feel really really difficult and like you're a hundred you know, thousands of miles away from where you want to be but if you keep trying set like goals that you can achieve then uh, you know you can chip away and 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 keep positive and you must be surrounded by people and family that I guess have been through this same journey if sixth generation you say of family business yeah yeah well yeah we're quite I suppose I don't get much sympathy from my father. He's, he's kind of like the old school of, you know, just get on with it. And Is that how many what? businesses are in the group? Uh, we, I think we, we've got 12 brands now. So, uh, yeah, so there's quite a lot of uh, expectation there, but, but also, you know, loads of experience to, to leverage yeah. from. But, yeah, when you look at my dad, he's not the kind of, like, softly, softly approach. I think the analogy I'd give is when I was a kid, he put me in a rowing boat and just said, you know, go over there type thing it wasn't, it wasn't like here's how to row it was like I'll see you on the other side type situation and that's the approach that he takes sink and, or swim yeah like sink it. or swim basically yeah. but you know there's that's that's you know his approach and uh, there's definitely other people that uh, can help me with you know more minute details but he's always there for me you know if I've got any hmm. serious questions or gripes or whatever you know he definitely has a lot of experience to support me with and if you could do the last two and a half three years again anything that you would do differently Oh, good question. I mean, there's loads of things I'd do differently based on what I know now in <laughs> yeah. terms of, uh, like, we've pretty much rebuilt the whole platform since we started. Right. And that's just an experience thing in terms of knowing how transactions work, what processes people work best with. So I'll do loads technically. Right. Um, but from, like, a perspective of uh, the thing that I think is the most important is the people within the business. Uh, the most important thing mm. so make sure to invest as much time as possible in those people um, and support them as much as you can and you know make sure that they're the best possible people you know get your hiring strategy right um, because you can waste a lot of time if you don't get the right people and mm. you know at the end of the day you want them to be you know adding as much as possible to, to the business because they're the people that you guys will see if you, if, you know if, if they're your relationship manager if they're your sales rep you know um, you're not going to see me you're going to see them mm. so. or even yeah I remember when you got a bit of a coup with Peter didn't you and he got on, came on board because he'd come from some really big he'd worked on some massive projects hadn't he and uh, yeah that's our getting, developer yeah. yeah getting the actual developer because again he more or less helped rebuild it from the ground up again didn't he yeah, Peter's been fantastic for the team. You know, he's got he's come from um, designing systems that have scaled across you know multiple geographies, um, and to bring that experience to the business is fantastic. But it takes a long time to find someone like that, and um, mm. 
yeah, now we've been on a search to find other people that really fit that mould. And uh, it can be frustrating at times, you know, the highs and lows, you know, when you've interviewed 10 mm. people and no one seems to fit and you think it's never going to happen. And then usually out of the blue, it, you know, someone comes up and... Are you looking globally or are you looking kind of local to Hull? No, we're, we're looking locally at the moment because we're still a small team and I think it's yeah. quite important. Um, we do do a lot of remote working, but I, I still see massive value in having that once a week, yeah. even once a month, you know, face-to-face communication. So we, we look across the Yorkshire region, but we like to be able to see yeah. people and get them to be really part of the culture. So we haven't quite um, gone for that like national coverage yet, and we haven't done anything international. But I think you know, as the business changes over time, that, that maybe would change. Mm. Uh, and with some of the kind of geographical expansion stuff we're looking at, that'll have to change. Um, you know, it'd be a lot better to have people with context of local markets if we're trying to sell into different markets. So. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. How did that come about then? I, I, you might not be able to tell me the, the specific markets, but I, I, what what made you think of a, a different market in a, in a different country? Well, we're starting to look for a different route to market in terms of um, not necessarily doing direct B2B sales, so doing B2B2B. Basically, okay. so and through partnerships, through partnerships, yeah. yeah. So uh, we started to look at other software platforms that might be interested in uh, our user experience, and we came across a, a company um, in a different geography that wanted to build what we had, and it was going to be much quicker for them to work with us than to try and build something themselves. So um, yeah, we're we're now in the process of of working out with them, you know, how that partnership would work. Uh, and hopefully it'll lead to a really quick route to market uh, mm. in terms of like building things for them but for us you know exposure to a lot of customers that would take us ages to acquire uh, if we were doing that organically and I guess it depends a lot on obviously what type of country you're in but that particular country might have a different thought process about the econ- uh, about the sustainability side of things so again if they're a bit more eco-friendly and things like that so again uh, yeah, that would be interesting to see. Yeah, and tax law and things like tax that. Law, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that's yeah. the big challenge because at the end of the day, you know, we talked a lot about sustainability. Uh, our product is a finance automation product, yeah, like yours. Commercially, you need yeah, to make so, sure the money makes sense. Yeah, so we like our core. We, I mean, we do do sustainability reporting as well on the, uh, as as consultation, but the core technology product that we have is a finance automation tool, mm. and we've got to do a. Uh, tax and you know uh, expenses right before we can do the value add sustainability yeah, stuff yeah. so going into new geographies you've got to learn all about you know how they do mileage reimbursements yeah. in a company x and it's mm. just when you think you've got your head around it in the uk you gotta you gotta start thinking <laughs> it's about that. just in the uk isn't it let alone new countries yeah so that and that's the that's a massive challenge because you've got to kind of go back to the drawing board again as to how the database structure works and you just got to be constantly open to, you know, going, changing how things are done, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It's good. Good steer. Uh, just talk to us about Rick's. It's a fascinating business. So you said sixth generation. How did it start? Uh, it started as a shipping business. Right. So uh, I could go into detail, but uh, in, uh, in 1873, uh, it was, so we're coming up to our 150th year next wow. year so I'm doing some stuff around around that which is going to be really exciting but yeah my uh, Robert Ricks six generations ago um, 
kind of went he built ships on the river Tees and right. as was the thing at the time he took a share ownership in the ship that he bought and kind of that was the birth of, of the Rick's business and then he moved to Hull in 1883 and we've never left this uh, beautiful city ever since. So, uh, and so, it's, yeah. it's a very diverse business, as you said earlier. There's how many different brands? or Yeah, so we've got uh, 12 different brands. Okay. Uh, it can change on a <laughs> daily, weekly basis. Uh, there's always new ideas and things that pop up. But, um, yeah, it's a really diverse business. So we've got uh, things ranging from manufacturing uh, luxury holiday homes to logistics so we do oil distribution which is a really interesting mm. topic which i can get into in a second based on my my kind of views uh we do uh renewables work so putting technicians on on the wind farms okay. um that are out uh, in the north sea um we still have elements of the shipping business really really what ricks is is it's a business that's taken advantage of opportunities that have developed around its operations and also in the local in the local area you know we are very much a whole centric mm. business with operations elsewhere but you know our roots are very much in 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 this area um but we're employing um 900 people now which is quite wow. incredible um, so yeah it's it's grown nice, it's yeah. grown a lot which is mostly due to the manufacturing element of the we business. just moved offices don't we? yeah we year. just moved offices to the marina which is fantastic for me it's brilliant you know big big kind of boost in standard of life when we're on <laughs> you know a like, nice class office uh, versus being in a tin can that was on an industrial estate so I'm really happy with that but uh, and I think you know it's great for staff as well like getting people back in the office after Covid it's yeah, nice to have somewhere where people enjoy coming to work. So, is it deliberate, kind of strategic plan to be in lots of different kind of industries and sectors to diversify risk and open up opportunities? Is that? Yeah, I think you. I think in the last fifteen years, the business has diversified more than it has in its past one hundred and fifty years. Right. You know, okay. we were a dry cargo yeah. shipping and logistics business for a very long time, but my dad's really jumped on opportunities that have come through. You know, we started to invest in property, commercial property, because it was a something that uh, helped us when we were uh, having, you know, things come off the ships and it's places for things to be stored. And then off the back of buying those properties, opportunities popped up. Like the whole reason we got into caravan manufacturing was that we bought the old Cosalt factory in 2007 right. just because we were doing a land acquisition. But then there was a caravan factory on it, so we thought, you know, why, why, you know, there's loads of other people in the city doing this. Why don't we give it a go if we get the right team? Yeah. Um, and that business is going to turn over 160 million next next year. Wow. Next year. So it, you know, it's it's flying. gone from strength to strength. Yeah, it's absolutely flying. So um, there is a strategy, but it's a strategy that looks at kind of like the time mm. and things that are, you know opportunities that present themselves versus being something that's like written down on a hard yeah. piece of paper and uh well, it's entrepreneurial i guess yeah hence the expense mate and accountable conversation as well it's just you've seen a new opportunity and moving the business into that yeah definitely i think one thing that would be great to talk about is you know the oil business yeah, yeah. We, we, we yeah we have that and then a lot of people are probably thinking well, what on earth is this it's walking, <laughs> it's walking contradiction um you know, I've come on to, I've come into the board. That's something that we did before I was. You know, it's something that we've done my whole lifetime. But my view on it is, you know, I've kind of had that internal debate. But I come to the realization that actually, um, if you were just to sell that business, 
I'm not saying that we're going to do that, but if you mm. were to do that, someone else would come along, buy it, and run that business. As long as there's a consumer demand for mm. that product, um, people will, you know, that business is always going to run, whether it's us running it or someone else. So actually, we need to think about how do we run that business in the most responsible possible way. Mm-hmm. So things like looking at regenerative farming, carbon credits, offering those to our uh, domestic customers maybe, but to support our farming customers that we work with and looking at transition fuels like HVO fuels and supplying those to some of our commercial customers mm. and being part of a transition uh, instead of just saying, hey, you know, we're going to have a net zero strategy mm. as a company, yeah. so we're going to get rid of all of the things that don't enable us to be net zero. That doesn't help the UK economy become net zero. Actually, we need to think about, you know, yeah, how do we do it in a different way? There's just supply and demand there, because I, I saw like a report when they were talking about the energy crisis and, and um, gas and electric prices going up, when they actually showed the map of, of Yorkshire and Lincolnshire, <laughs> the amount of people that relied on on, ga- on, on, on oil was something like 40% in Yorkshire and 60% in Lincolnshire because of the amount of agriculture and, and, and farms. And again, you think, I've lived in houses that you just, yeah, turn the gas on or you, but again, a lot of these people are out in the sticks and they rely on services like yourself. So you can't just turn that off and just say, oh, I'm, we're going there. Uh, yeah, we're going net zero. <laughs> exactly, yeah. You know, someone, someone, another company would come in and buy the you know, buy, buy the operation and, and do exactly the same thing. So it's about when those when the opportunities come to transition those customers onto different fuels or mm. offer them different services, we need to be helping them do that um, and making sure that we have a sustainable business model. Like the vision for Ricks is uh, building sustainable businesses for future generations. Mm-hmm. And that is what we want to do. We want to build a business that's there for my kids. You know, I'm retirement planning at the age of mm, 28, yeah, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. like a crazy, <laughs> a crazy thing. But it's about, you know, thinking about how do we keep this going for another generation and beyond, you know, and another 150 years. And how do you think it will? So, again, cash in mind, forward 10 years, what do you think Rick's as a business will look like in 10 years' time? Well, we're certainly investing a lot in the, in the, in the manufacturing element of... Um, the business so mm-hmm. I think it will that will be more and more prominent um, and I'd like us to do some of the things that I talked about around mm-hmm. you know circular in yeah. our manufacturing capacity I'd, I'd love it if in 10 years time I could sit here and talk to you about maybe you know just doing our first circular caravan because I think it will take that long but if we can really embed um, that in, in our culture now we can hopefully get there um, but I think it will still look diverse. I yeah. think there will be loads of different things that we do. I'd like to think that some of the areas that are growing, like renewables and accountable, will start to take more of the share of the income and, and the turnover than maybe our you know, oil business as it is today. But I'd like to think that that's maybe in a different guise, you know, delivering different types of fuels. Yeah. Um, all the time we're, we're looking at changing things, you know, just at the moment, I'm looking at a new way of running. We've got a car dealership, uh, Jordans, which is part of the, the group. We're looking at a new way of s- selling cars, you know, through leases versus a traditional dealership model. Brilliant. So it's just all about looking at what we do and rethinking how it could be done to, mm. to keep up with the times. So more digital, more, you know, just always changing. The- you don't go any further with the lagoon project. That's that, yeah. yeah. You have the families to do with the lagoon. Do you want to explain what that is? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the lagoon, it's a massive 
uh, the ambitious but fantastic project that uh, my dad and a few other people, um, you won't take all the credit, have, have worked on. Uh, but it's a scheme to basically build a, a lagoon um, from the Humber Bridge up to um, the, the ports in, in Hull uh, to create a, a new living space along the front of the, uh, the city. Uh, but also create new road infrastructure, uh, protect the uh, city from flooding as we see rising uh, mm. s- uh, sea levels. And it's really just a, a massive infrastructure project that's, that looks to be game-changing for the city instead of just you know building a flood ball that might work for 10, 15 years. Mm. You know, it's something that will future-proof the, mm. uh, the city for you know, 100 years, but also looks to attract people to come and live here and makes us like the the Miami of uh, the UK. Yeah, I was say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when what time might we be looking out for that? When should I be buying? We've got to get, we've got to, someone's got to sign <laughs> off on the funding uh, right. um, first. But um, now I think uh, I think that's probably a project that's, that's something that I'll inherit in 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 the fullness of time. You know, I'd, I think Dad would love to see it in his lifetime. But it's it's constant lobbying. Mm. Yeah. You know, encouraging people. I think one of the frustrations that Dad sees is as soon as he gets close to thinking you might be getting somewhere the government changes and there's no it's whole, new, whole new set of stakeholders that he has to encourage but I think the big thing if anybody from the council is listening is he would just love the council to fully get behind it and support it because that's you know locally people have got to support it mm. and anybody listening you know if you can go and go on lagoon.co.uk and sign up to the newsletter sign the you know the petition you know the more people that support it locally that will enable us to have, you know, something to take it to a national scale and promote it, you know, in Westminster to try and get the funding. Well, we'd love to have, you know, somebody, your father or whoever on from the project and talk about mm-hmm. it and what it means to the region and hopefully that'll help give it a bit more of a platform. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure someone will be happy to come on and talk about it. Good stuff. So we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time, Harry. Really no worries. Thank, Thank you very much for having me. Right, before you go, I'm under strict instructions by our content wizard to ask you to like, subscribe, share, comment, do whatever you can to feed the algorithm. As usual, I'll see you next Monday at 7am for another really insightful conversation. Thank you very much.